Welcome to episode 64 of the Juice Box Podcast with Scott Lybrand. Do you remember episode 63 with Dana Lewis? Well, Dana and Scott are married. If you haven't heard the episode with Dana, you don't have to skip back to listen to it. You could listen to this one first and then go back to Dana. They both stand alone really well. All right, let's cue the music and get this thing going. I want to thank Insulet, makers of the Omnipod, for sponsoring this episode. Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. You can check out Scott and Dana's work at openaps.org. That's openaps.org. If you've got it in you to try it, go try. I'm going to tell Scott in a minute that I don't know how to do these things, and he's almost going to yell at me. (sighs) I'm already married. I don't need Scott yelling at me, too. Logitech USB headset. Okay, can you hear me now? You sound very good. All right, perfect. I can hear you this time. Excellent. 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 How are you? So far, so good today. I had a bad night last night. Um, insulin pump site related with my daughter, but um, but uh, we're better now. She uh, she is like having a growth spurt, and uh-huh. at the same time. You know, she had some kind of crazy stuff for dinner. We didn't kind of get to pre-bolts the way we wanted to. So I thought there was a rise that was happening because of food. And in the back of my head, I kept thinking, like, maybe this maybe this, this site's not good, you know. But then I got it back, and I thought, okay, it's probably not the site. And then she gets ready for bed, and I've got her blood sugar fine, and she has a little snack. And I'm like, it's going to be fine. I cover it with a bolus. And by 1.30, it's just... It's on that steady dirge up, like diagonal, yeah. you know, like every five minutes, seven points up. And and I hit it really hard, and it started coming down. I thought, okay, it's okay. And I went to sleep. And then I woke up like four and a half hours later, and she was like 400. And, yeah. and she had, you know, ketones. And so we, cha- I changed the pump and shot insulin and got her to drink a bunch of water, let her go back to sleep. But the poor kid didn't get to school till like 11 a.m. So, um, so we're doing good now, though. <laughs> although although it's still uh it, the what, whatever's going on with her is still happening because I'm just suddenly using way more insulin than I was before and I'm not I just ramped her up like 5 months ago so I, I can't imagine it's uh something that needs to be um permanent but at the same time I mean I guess she's growing so much it's hard for me to tell at the moment yeah I've never dealt with kids in growth spurts but I hear it gets crazy yeah I think that's what's happening now. <laughs> so I feel good and crazy. So Scott, so in a moment when we start talking about all this open APS stuff, you're going to see why I don't have it because my brain, if your brain works one way, I guarantee you my brain works a completely opposite way. <laughs> so uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and then we'll jump right in. Sure. My name is Scott Lybrand. Um, I do not have diabetes, but um, I love someone who does, Dana Lewis. Um, She's now my wife, and when I met her, um, she had an insulin pump and CGM, but um, didn't have any way for those to talk to each other. And we've been on a journey for the past few years of um, bringing those devices together, allowing them to interoperate, and it's been uh, an incredible ride. Yeah, now now Dana and I have already spoken, and she told me that this all started with her just wanting to get alarms from her glucose monitor. Yes, she, um, when we'd met, she had a um, CGM for 
about a month and um, was very quickly realizing that it was not loud enough to wake her up at night. So we were looking for a way to make that better. And um, it took a few months before we uh, discovered, Dana discovered um, someone online who had done this, um, had gotten the data off of her CGM, the Dexcom G4 CGM. And um, that was an opportunity that we didn't want to pass up. And so we reached out to, um, it was John Kostick, and figured out how to run the code that he was so willing uh, to supply to us and got a rudimentary system set up that would allow us to get alerts when blood sugar was too high or too low. And we've been running it from there. <laughs> Quite so. It wasn't quite that visual, but um, it was very Rube Goldberg. We had the um, the Dexcom plugged in with a USB cable to a um, to a Windows laptop that we had sitting in the nightstand, and that Windows laptop wrote the blood sugars to a text file, which was in a Dropbox. Went up to a server, and then um, I had um, my server pull from Dropbox and then did the alerting from there and sent it back down to an iPad. It was quite the, and we've continued to, to just run with system after system that you would just like, wait, you have to go clear across the country with the blood sugar just to get it across the room. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> Do you, I, I, years ago, I used to send emails to Dexcom and I was like, look, as the parent of a child, like, I'm just telling you, like make an alarm clock that it talks to. <laughs> you, you know, like I, I'd buy it. Like I know my insurance wouldn't cover, it, but I would buy it for you. I used to have like I used to have dreams of like, you know, um, like like clocks in my kitchen over my sink that would just kind of like glow a different color if my daughter's blood sugar was in trouble. And this is when she was really little, and and all these different ideas. But I did not think to send the the information clear across the galaxy and then back to me again. Which obviously you're much smarter yeah, than me. You figured it out. It is uh, quite a bit more difficult to to get blood sugar across a room than it is to get, across, get it across the country. Um, a lot of that is due to the non-interoperability of the devices, but you mentioned the, the idea of having a clock or a, a light bulb that's plugged in. Well, unfortunately, with the system we have now, um, that requires a years-long FDA approval process and thousands of pages of supporting documentation to show that it's safe, and that's kind of silly, but that's the world we live in. So we've been uh, really fortunate to uh, be able to bypass all that and to build a lot of these things ourselves. Yeah, because in the in the end, the very simple statement is is that if the company is going to say it does it, it has to do it, and th and that's it. Because the one time the light bulb doesn't glow, and you pass out because of that, there now there's a liability issue. And it's not like when Apple sends out an update to their phone and they're like, "Oh, we said it was going to do that, but it didn't." Oh well, and then <laughs> we'll fix it for you. And then they do or they don't or they pull it, and no one's hurt by it. And but to your point, the process is insanely long and, and cumbersome and probably too much. So yeah, I, think. I think there's a not great dynamic there where people expect things to be done for them. And because people expect things to be done for them, the FDA expects people, expects companies to do things for them. And so you get in this cycle of we must make the thing 100 percent reliable and no possibility of ever failing um, to alert a human that something is going on rather than having a system like we're much more used to dealing with in our, the rest of our everyday life of just having to check things ourselves and having to have different systems as backup for each other. And that, um, that type of, um, approach actually gets you more safety, but a lot of people don't realize that they, 
they can't rely on one thing to be a 100% foolproof, even if the FDA says it should be. Right. No, absolutely. You're 100% right. And I say, I've said it in a couple of different shows in a couple of different ways. And, you know, just in, in episode 62, I said how I was trying to get a company to, uh, I was seeing how much the podcast is helping people. And I'm starting to get emails like daily about like my A1C is coming down, stuff from hearing on the podcast. And I, I wanted this, I was trying to get somebody to sort of like financially back doing the podcast in real, in real life, you know, in front of people. And they, the, you know, people I was talking to were like, this is great. We'd love to do that. But what happens if you say something that someone then goes home and tries and doesn't work for them? So therefore, instead of, instead of helping a thousand people in a room, we're worried about the one person who will misunderstand and therefore nobody gets to hear it. And it's the same problem. And that's something that we've really found is uh, an ethos that really helps with the DIY projects that we're doing is that everyone who's involved in any of these projects takes responsibility for themselves, for their loved one, for whomever is affected. And they don't consider the system to be infallible. They don't consider this to be something that was just given to them and it should always work because they built it themselves and they know just how many points of failure it has and they know how to deal with those. They know what needs to be done. And that, um, that DIY mentality is just so important. Um, if you're going to do anything, um, new and exciting and different because you just, you just cannot rely on technology to solve your problems for you. You have to use it as a tool where you solve your problems using the technology. Yeah. I I somehow think that that idea is going to be a huge impediment as artificial pancreas tries to come to, to market. Um, because you know, short of having someone sign a waiver that says, look, we expect this thing will do this, but if it doesn't, we're not liable, which is never going to fly. It slows down progress so much. Um, it reminds me of, uh, when I was talking to Chris Freeman, just dozens of episodes ago. And he said, people, he was very specific and said, Americans, he said, they just want a pill and then they want it fixed. And then they don't want to think about it again. And maybe that's just comes from generations of growing up in this country where things have gotten progressively easier and, and less, you have to be less intuitive and less involved to make things work. I mean, maybe, maybe it's nobody's fault, but it is certainly is the way it is. Let me, let me ask you a question. As Mm -hmm. I, as I'm talking to Dana, it strikes me that she has this 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 quality about her personality that that I see in my wife sometimes. My wife either doesn't know how bright she is or isn't willing to listen to somebody tell her how bright she is. And as I was explaining to Dana, like because I listen, Scott, I talk fast, but wow, <laughs> Dana can get going. <laughs> you know what I mean? And she, she and I both do that. It, I, I get told to slow down all the time. But see, but you're an engineer even. So like what the stuff you guys are spitting out of your heads is like, I'm just like, I'm a streamer consciousness, you know, consciousness guy. You're just hearing my thoughts. You're actually saying things that are like, are verifiable. <laughs> Mine's just bull if nobody checks on it, you know, like, but you're, you're, she was talking about this stuff. And I realized that when I was coming to talk to you today, that if you gave me a quiz about open APS, I would fail it miserably. Although while she was talking, I was like, oh my God, yeah, right on. This is excellent. Do that. So, <laughs> so, so what does, so now you, let's just go with what, what do you do for a living? Like, why was it when your then girlfriend said, I can't hear my continuous glucose monitor when I'm sleeping? What about you made you say, oh, we could fix that? Because if she said that to me, I'd be like, uh, too bad. So, so, so what, what do you, I'd be, maybe I could come up with, put it in a glass and it would rattle around, but, but, but what do you, uh, what, what about you made you think, Oh, we can fix that. Well, I think it's just a, um, a mentality that comes from years of realizing that 
I can do things in the world. Um, I don't think it really comes from having particular technical skills because most of the skills that I needed to do this project, I learned to do the project. It was more of an attitude of, I can do this. Like there is a, there is a solution here. This is a, um, this is a system that has parts that can be understood. I can figure them out. Um, and I can do something new with them. And I can't do that myself alone necessarily, but there's, thousands of people out there who are um, providing information that might be useful for this. And there's one person out there that's going to provide the key piece of information that gets me unblocked. And then there's so many possibilities. So to, to give a, a more concrete example, um, this is not something I thought of, but someone realized that there's this app that has, it's an earthquake sensor app, and it uses your um, vibration sensor or your accelerometer on your phone to detect when an earthquake is occurring. And what they realized is that if you place that um, phone with that um, earthquake app activated underneath your Dexcom G4 receiver with it on vibrate, that when it vibrates, the app detects an earthquake and it lets off a really loud siren noise. So in terms of just finding hacks that make your life better, that kind of mentality of like, hey, I know this thing. Oh, wait, it could do this other thing. That is, um, is mostly just a mindset of realizing that um, there's this thing and there's this other thing and I can put them together. And it's certainly within my power to, to try things out and see what works. And that, I think, is the, is the kind of mindset that um, allows people to, to come up with new solutions. But even if you um, don't have the, the flash of insight that, um, that allows you to realize that for the first time and be the first person, um, I, obviously I wasn't the one that thought of that particular thing. But um, the ability to share these ideas online and the ability to connect with other people means that um, everyone can take advantage of this, uh, this sort of insight. And that's what we've seen with OpenAPS is almost um, all the people, well over half, maybe two-thirds, three-quarters of the people who have built the system don't come to it with any significant technical background. They come to it with um, an understanding of their own diabetes. They come to it with a desire to do something about it and with... Um, the, the passion or obsession or something um, that drives them to say, yeah, I can do that. And um, seeing other people do it, it often brings that barrier down. But these people come in and with no knowledge whatsoever, but just a willingness to learn, they look through the documentation, they start figuring things out, they get stuck, they ask questions, somebody helps them, and um, everyone pays it forward and you get dozens and dozens of people set up on the system who had no idea that they could build anything in their lives, but they had a problem in their life, which is louder alarms, maybe, or it's not liking to wake up with um, crappy blood sugars in the morning, or the pump site issue you were telling me about earlier of knowing that if a pump site fails, you're um, going to, or starts to fail, not even completely fail, but it starts to fail, you're going to end up with 400 blood sugars. And that just considering that to be unacceptable is enough to drive a lot of people to try things that um, some people would consider kind of crazy. But when you really think about it, um, it just makes total sense to have a computer automate the same decision making that we already do as people living with diabetes or people with loved ones with diabetes. And that, um, that, allows, that realization allows a lot of people to um, have the motivation to go and figure out how to do what they never thought they could. It's a special thing. And it is a certain mindset, not just a mindset, but it's, it's your brain has to work. And it's like, I, I have a very, like, I have a very artisty brain. I want to push back a little bit on that because, um, a lot of people say, well, I'm just not Bill. I'm just, I just can't do that. Like I, my mind doesn't work that way. And I think that is actually a choice. I don't think it's a, um, 
it's an inbuilt thing that this is the way your brain works and you can't do anything about it. I think it's a choice. You come to um, this with certain gifts um, and maybe you don't have certain gifts that other people have, but um, this is not something that can only be done by a few people. This is something that can be done by anyone with sufficient motivation and willingness to spend the time and to learn it. Now, you may decide that this isn't right for you because you don't want to um, do that much extra work to, to get it working because the the payoff for you just wouldn't be there or you know that it's going to be an ongoing burden to to keep doing this and that's just not worth it to you. And that's perfectly acceptable, but that but that is a choice. I don't think anyone should go, come away thinking, oh, I can't do that. Scott, because you're so much smarter than me. You just that, proved to me that I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, that's, the, that's the beauty of it is you don't have to be you don't have to be smart enough to figure this out for yourself. You no, can see that other people are doing it and say, oh, well, that guy did it. That lady did it. That very kid did yeah. it. Yeah. And if they can do it, maybe I can figure out how to do it too. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever told anybody this before, but uh, an, a handful of years ago, I was offered a, a, a contract to write a book. And I, I, I wholeheartedly accepted it after making this, you know, this pitch that this is what I thought my book should be about. And the publisher came back and they were like, we'd like to offer it to you. And I was like, that's great. Thank you. And I accepted on the spot. And, and uh, the next thing I did was call my wife at work and told her, I was like, hey, I just got a, I'm, you know, I'm going to be published. And, and she was like, can you write a book? And I was like, I have no idea, but I'm going to. And, and it really <laughs> exactly. is the same idea. Right? Exactly. But, but see, the difference is in my mind is that I knew it was all that decisions made on a self-reliance idea. The idea that everything I knew I needed was inside of me and what you have, I, I believe what you're saying. I know, I believe that what I would need to do open APS is inside of me, but I'm, it, I'm so disconnected from it that a, a pretty large fear comes in. But I like what you're saying is that if somebody really stops and looks at it, then, you know, it, it is doable for people who even would think that I, this isn't how my brain works. And, and what Dana was saying is that it's set up in a certain way so that when people decide to try it, they have to understand it in steps to move forward. And that's sort of part of your, I guess, your safety system, really, to make sure that somebody who's not just completely unaware of how it works doesn't end up with a working device in their hand. Yeah, we were very careful and continue to be very careful to not make this quote too easy, which I mean, that looks a little bit like, oh, wait, wait a minute, you're, you're trying to, to keep people out. But what we're really trying to do is make people go through a process of learning what they need to know to use the system safely. And that starts with understanding your diabetes. It starts with understanding what insulin sensitivity factor and um, duration of insulin action and insulin to carb ratio and all these things that they teach you when they send you home with a pump are and what they what they really mean and um, how you how the bolus wizard works and how you do the calculations of dosing insulin. And these are things that most people with diabetes have got down so so pat that they don't even think about that as a as a particular knowledge that they bring to the table because it's just they're so used yeah. to doing it. Yeah. But someone without diabetes is like what? Um, and so you bring that as a, as a baseline of knowing what the system should be doing in a certain um, circumstance based on the, the blood sugar and the insulin on board. And we've built the system to be, um, to be very transparent in terms of being able to see why it's making the decisions it's making. So we want people to run through the setup process in such a way that they do understand what is going on at every step of the process. Maybe not to the level that um, someone who's writing the code would understand it, but at a level where they can say, no, that's not right. That's not what it should be doing. Well, I, must have mis I must have messed something up or the, the system might have a bug. But understanding that uh, at that level, what it should be doing means that people can go in and as they um, 
as they start to set pieces up, they can they can test it. They can look at it, say this is yeah, that's a that's a reasonable suggestion. That's that's along the lines of what I would have done um, if I were managing my diabetes manually, and that gets people um, the confidence that they they need to be able to trust the system to um, dose insulin. It seems like what you're saying to in my mind is that it's like the modern day technological. Um, equivalent of here's some needles and some insulin and a, a simple math formula. We don't want to give you an insulin pump until you understand how to do it this way. And then people spend that time figuring it out. It's it, it feels archaic at this point because of the pumps and the CGMs. But back in the day, before that stuff, they didn't want to give you an insulin pump until you could take care of yourself with needles because they thought that that process would teach you all that you needed to know. And and that seems I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah, it's not necessarily the case that. Um you always want to give people the the really rudimentary technology, but being um, forced to go through the steps manually um, of doing the calculations or of figuring out what needs to be done, that I think is really valuable. So whether or not you inject the insulin with a pen or a needle, I don't think that really matters. But being able to calculate an insulin dose is definitely a skill that most people with diabetes um, learn early on. And that sort of um, skill translates into being able to understand what an artificial pancreas should be doing. And that's one of the things that we have done differently than what all the commercial systems seem to be doing is we are really trying to um, do everything in a way that um, a person with diabetes can understand why we did what we did. And we can provide enough information for the person with diabetes to verify that the decision we're making seem sensible. Whereas with a lot of the commercial systems, uh, it seems like they're going to come out with what is sort of a black box, which is just trust the system. It'll dose the right amount of insulin. Don't worry about it. Um, and that is a, is a kind of a siren song. It sounds great, but when you're actually trying to, to learn to trust the system and you're trying to figure out why your blood sugar is rising um, and not coming down or why it's staying high, you just don't have the ability with um, those kind of systems necessarily to to really understand what's going on. And so we've d done, um, we made a really big effort to, to keep that um, front and center as the driving goal, which is to allow anyone using the system to fully inspect everything that it's doing and understand. And that's a big part of being an open APS, um, not just the open source code, but open operation. What, what I'm thinking is, is that one of the big pitfalls of that idea of it just works, just take it out of the box and slap it on, one of the huge pitfalls of that is as an, as by way of an example, like before, you know, I, we were talking when we first got on that my daughter had a pump site that just didn't last as long as it should have. And if you don't understand that that can happen, then what you hear in your mind is they look, they told me I could wear this, this infusion set for this amount of time and it hasn't been that much time. So as I'm trying to troubleshoot it in my brain, it never occurs to me that it might be the infusion set. It, it's got to be a million other different things. And by the time I go through all those things, exhaust myself, realize that it wasn't none of those, and I change the pump, then I go, oh, it was the pump. And, and, and you know, and, and it's just, it's tough because once you tell somebody something works for 72 hours, or you tell them that, you know, it definitely does this, this thing is going to ring and it's going to wake you up, or this is going to do this, and the one time it doesn't do it, it's funny, your brain gets programmed, like it, it skips over that as a possibility in your in your flow chart in your head. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I definitely agree that that um, is a is a big concern. And I think that um, that a lot of the companies really underappreciate the extent to which diabetes is 
a complicated situation that is going to remain complicated and you're not going to be able to fix that with a piece of technology. So the giving people the tools to be able to troubleshoot their own situation, I think that mentality um, hasn't quite gotten through to some of the device uh, makers. I, I mean, they, they definitely do have a lot of that in the, uh, in the current generation system. So maybe they will figure out how to get it in the new ones, but I'm a little bit worried that they're um, going a little bit overboard in the trying to do everything for you and not giving you the... Um, the knowledge and the awareness that you need to be able to troubleshoot when things go wrong. I wonder if it's that they don't understand or if it's that it's the nature of trying to sell something, you, you know, like, can you imagine if you were, had, you were selling anything like anything, like say you were selling a pizza, it's Scott's pizza. And on the front of it, it said Scott's pizza tastes great. Most of the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> It doesn't taste so great yeah. after it's been sitting um, out for 12 hours and gets all dried out. Right, well, right, guess right. what? People yeah. kind of understand that pizza dries out. So exactly. That's, that's not as big of a deal. The new Animus insulin pump keeps your blood sugar where you want it most of the time. <laughs> and that's exactly what's going to happen because right. even with the best artificial pancreas technology, um, if you can be in range 80% of the time, that is tremendously awesome because most people um, without that technology can barely can manage 50% that. if they're doing everything superhumanly possible and just micromanaging it to no end. Um, so that other 20% of the day, I mean, that's several hours a day when you're out of range. And that might mean that you have to um, think about taking man manual action, et cetera. And having um, a, a greater awareness of what's going on is, is definitely going to help with that. I think the other thing that, that drives the companies to this um, this approach that they've taken of making it sort of black box is they're starting with algorithms that are pretty hard to understand. Um, they've got, um, some of them are 17 variable differential equations. Um, there, another company was telling me about the, the one model they're looking at is a model predictive controller with a uh, common filter. Um, it's just, there's, there's very technical, um, elements of a lot of these algorithms that are just not possible for it. And, average person understand. I mean, I can't even understand a lot of the, the math that goes into these algorithms. And so um, we've found with OpenAPS that it's possible to get the same results using really simple um, arithmetic that anyone with diabetes can understand. Um, and so that is, I think, a, a big difference between what's coming out of research labs, which is focused on stuff that's academically interesting in a lot of, t a lot of cases, versus stuff that is um, the most practical, simple, useful approach to give people um, better control, and also give them understanding of what's going on. Well, you know, when you say you wrote your own algorithm, and, and you know, you and Dana did this, it seems otherworldly to me when you're saying it. It's fantastic. And, and at the same time, I, I, I'm getting that what you're saying is that it's like, for me, as a person who's been taking care of someone's type 1 for a, a decade, all the things that I think about and the decisions that I make, you've just automated them somehow. Yeah, I think algorithm is a scary word to some people. Okay. Um, to, to us engineer, engineers, an algorithm is really simple. It's just a, a method for doing things. Right. I think maybe a better term that I should use um, to explain it is decision rules. So I was talking to someone yesterday who doesn't have a pump, and she, she's an endurance athlete, and she um, has to figure out how to do her MDI um, to get the right results based on where she is in her training and whether she's about to run a marathon or just ran one and is recovering, et cetera. Um, and she was talking about these decision rules that she's written down and how those decision rules um, are things that she's just figured out sort of by rule of thumb of like, this is what works in this situation. And she says, when I, when I just go to try to do it, it 
I don't get very good results. But when I stop and think for a minute and look at my decision rules and say, oh, well, in this case, I should do this because mm-hmm. that's what's worked for me in the past, that um, allows her to get good results. And so we were talking about, well, what if you took those decision rules and you um, put them into a computer somehow so that you didn't have to spend as much time going back through your paper notebook and, and looking for them. But really, there is no difference between writing your decision rules down in a computer versus writing them down in a notebook. You're just um, attempting to come to a, a certain set of rules that sent, tend to work for you in a certain situation and then writing them down and implementing them. And that's all we've really done. Is yeah. We've taken the decision rules that everybody knows is the right thing to do with their diabetes and we've written those decision rules down in a computer so that it can follow the rules and so that a human doesn't have to. And it can figure it out that the rule needs to be implemented much sooner than we can figure it out because we're waiting for physical signs to figure it out. Whereas that's part of it, but it just, it it can look every five minutes at every new blood sugar reading coming in. Mm -hmm. It, um, if you were so dedicated or if you had somebody whose full-time job was just to watch the, um, blood sugar coming in every five minutes and then do the math on a piece of paper and then do the right thing, you could implement this algorithm as a human. And in fact, that is what Dana and I did. So Dana and I built a system that, um, that generated recommendations. And so we were the last link in the, at that time, open loop of taking this data in and um, making some calculations and then doing some action. And at first, I hadn't written down the rules. And so I was doing them in my head or doing them manually somehow and then making a decision and executing it. And then once I figured out that, okay, this is what works, then I started putting pieces of that into the computer. But there's no reason that um, that this is actually any different from what you could do manually if you didn't have a life and you could look at blood sugar numbers every five minutes. That's why this is the job for machines is because that's the kind of thing that nobody wants to do. Um, and that's the kind of thing that a, a little computer can do all day, every day and have no problem with. First, let's go over what we know. We know that the Omnipod is the world's only tubeless insulin pump. We know that you can get a free demo version of the pod at myomnipod.com forward slash demo or at the links that I provide for you in the show notes. We know that Omnipod is is just, it rocks. I mean, stop it. No tubing on an insulin pump. Here's what you don't know. Here's what you don't know because it just happened. This is fancy new information. Omnipod is on the, like the social medias all of a sudden. They never were and now they are. My Omnipod on Twitter, that's at My Omnipod and on Facebook. My Omnipod. Just go up to the little search bar in the Facebook. You type My Omnipod, all one word. Don't make me spell it out for you. It's My Omnipod. M-Y-M-O. See, I spelled it wrong. Ugh, this is why I didn't want to spell it. M-Y-O-M-N-I-P-O-D. That's what you do. You search that on Facebook. You bang it up there. Boom, click, click, like, and you're all, you're all set. I don't know what they're going to put on there, but I bet you it's going to be good. Actually, look at this. Meet Erin, a high school student dancer with the Anchorage Ballet Company in Alaska, Potter since 2015. T1D looks like me. I think I got good stuff here. I recognize with my Northeast accent that when I say Potter, it sounds a little like Potter, and I don't mean Potter like Harry Potter. I mean Potter like Omnipodder, like P-O-D-D-E-R. I'll tell you what, though. If I was Harry Potter, I could put the Imperious Curse on you. It's one of the three unforgivable curses, which, when cast successfully, places the victim completely under the caster's control. And then I wouldn't have to do this ad. I could just get you to go follow Omnipod on Facebook and Twitter and download the app while you're at it. For You know, I talked about it in the last episode. Don't make me keep repeating myself. That app is on the Google Play Store and on the iOS app store. Listen, imperious. I don't know. See if that works. 
All right, let's get back to two guys named Scott talking about OpenAPS, which is magically making your own artificial pancreas. The whole thing's crazy. They made an artificial pancreas at their house. Are you not amazed? Here's my thought, is that when this, maybe to, to break the problem of people not understanding their own care once these, these artificial pancreases become commonplace, maybe someday somebody could take those rules and just give them, you know, common language descriptions so that people could follow what their insulin pump and their, their, their artificial pancreas was doing, and it would teach them as they were doing it. Because yeah, it's, it's interesting. That's actually a, not too far from what we've done with the um, English language, we call it a reference design mm -hmm. for OpenAPS. So before we ever wrote any code, um, we wrote up a, an outline for how we wanted this to work based on all the previous work that we'd been doing with Dana's DIYPS, which was the louder alarm system that developed into a full closed loop. And that was something that we built just for Dana, and it wasn't really suitable for, for widespread sharing. Mm -hmm. But we, at that point, understood what the rules should be and how it should work and how it would be um, appropriate to set that up for a system that we could share. And so f the first thing we did was we wrote up in English what we thought the rules should be, what we, sh what we thought should be done. And so there's a, if this situation, then do this type of English language explanation on openaps.org right. that explains how um, this decision making occurs. And so that's something that you can read as a person with diabetes and no technical background whatsoever and say, oh, okay, that's the rule. Yeah, okay, I do this and this. And then you could do that yourself on your pump if you felt like it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one way that sometimes people get... Um, get comfortable with this kind of idea is they actually try it themselves first before they ever build a system and say, oh yeah, that, that does work. Yeah. You can actually set um, a low temp basal as your blood sugar starts to, to drop and you can prevent having to do a carb correction because you shut off the insulin an hour before. And that, yeah. that's something that is a tool that most people haven't um, used because it's a little bit difficult to, to do the calculations and to get in uh, an hour before and actually do that. But if you have... Um, a time when you're actually watching the blood sugar really closely, you can say, okay, it looks like we're starting to drop now. I wonder if I need to, to do a low temp. Let me do the calculations. Oh, look, the insulin on board um, and the current blood sugar means that the blood sugar is going to drop um, over the next three hours down to, to 40. That's too low. Maybe I should set a temporary basal rate to zero, basically shut off insulin for a half an hour, and that will bring it up maybe to 60, depending I, on what your ratios are. I think people would find it probably surprising that when if you approach me and ask me what the best part of having a, an insulin pump is my first answer will be the ability to ma manipulate the basal insulin that's absolutely the best part of an insulin pump as far as i'm concerned yeah uh, you it's know, a big differentiator yeah. um aside from just being able to do it with one button push well you can do it with right. a pan it's not that different but you're yeah. right the getting the your basal insulin without is just something is, you can't do without a pump yeah it just it it's such a big deal like like you said I, if I if I walk upstairs at midnight and Arden's blood sugar is seventy five, I don't wake her up. I just I restrict her basal for a little while and get her to drift back up to more like ninety. And exactly, so you're already yeah. implementing the Open APS algorithm yourself. You're yeah. doing this manually already. Okay, all right, let's go. Let's change gears a little bit here. Yeah. I want to know. Uh, I always find it very interesting because I'm not a person who has diabetes either. I just love somebody who has diabetes and, and thrown myself into understanding how to keep them healthy. My daughter's A1C has been between 5'9 and 6'2 for coming up on three years. And that is in, I'm I probably was doing, a, being a little funny in the beginning, but probably in no small part to, I probably figured out a lot of the things that you guys figured out when you were writing your rules. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a different life. Like, um, 
watching someone live with type one diabetes and, and being very connected to them. And I, I sort of wanted to hear it from an adult's point of view, somebody who's, who's, because you did something, you know, you, you met a girl who, who had type one and you dated her and she, she told a story about her pulling out her, you know, her insulin pump during your date. And, and I think in her mind, she was just trying to test you to see if you were kind of worth continuing on with, you know, Yep. and, um, and, and which is fantastic. But then you, you weren't daunted by it where a lot of people might've looked at her and been like, Oh, you know, I don't want to get involved in this. And, and, and I, so I kind of want to know from you a little bit what it's like to be now married to a person who has type one. It's a pretty open-ended question, but start. Yeah, let's start, see where to start. Start wherever um, you want to. So, I don't know um, why I didn't even consider that to be something that would be a problem. Like when when Dana pulled out that pump at that restaurant, and it was our first date. It was like, oh look, there's something there's something else that I um, learned about Dana, mm-hmm. and it wasn't at all like a oh wait, that's complicated. I don't want to deal with complicated. It seemed to me like that was just another aspect of Dana and something to learn about her. And it wasn't a big deal. Um, that might be partly because, uh, I knew her a little bit from talking to her online already. And I knew that she, um, was very competent and had things figured out. And it was quite obvious that she knew how to deal with her own diabetes. And so it wasn't going to be my problem. Um, but it was also, I think partly a curiosity thing. Before you go on, let me ask you a question. What if she had an incredibly annoying laugh or um, something else that would have like struck you immediately. Like what, what if she, I don't know, snorted when she ate or said something, um, you know, vaguely racist during lunch or something like that. And like, do you, did you, do you think you, so you knew her beforehand, like, like from, from online. So I guess here's my question. It's a very personal question, but I, I really think it might get to the core of, of you, what you're about to answer is, do you think you loved her a little bit when you got there that day? <laughs> it wasn't very long after that that I realized I loved her. So okay. it was quite possible that I did a little bit. Um, and it, it's one of those things, you mentioned a, a number of personality quirks that she might have had that, right. that may or may not have been an issue. And it's hard for me to imagine one little thing like that being an issue. Um, if I met someone and Dana doesn't have a bone in her body, this was, wouldn't apply to her. But if I met someone and I... I heard them say something that was a little bit racist. I would probably pounce on that quick, pretty quickly and like have a discussion. Like, what do you mean by that? And what's your attitude and what do you think? Um, the, I mean, those kind of things would be important. Um, and bringing it back to Dana, she, she brought up, um, her insulin pump and it didn't, uh, prompt much of a discussion right at that moment because I mean, it did prompt a discussion, but it didn't, I didn't get to get into a lot of the the details because I didn't understand anything about it. Um, but, over the next few dates, um, we got to, um, touch talk about what the tools were and what the, the data was that was available. And so how do you deal with that? And what, what is it like living with it? And to me, it was a, an exploratory thing. I knew what diabetes was from a really basic, uh, biology perspective, but I had no idea what the reality was, um, and is of living with diabetes. And so finding out that the insulin pump and the continuous glucose monitor can't talk to each other. Well, you do have the, the glucose data, that's new. That's good. I didn't realize that was available in real time every five minutes. But wait, you can't actually have that data talk to the pump and it, it's just like, well, that didn't make any sense. And Dana was like, well, yeah, duh. I, I know it doesn't make any sense, but we can't do anything about it. Um, everyone who has those devices knows that it sucks. Um, but it was, 
it was something that she had been thinking about. And we were both like, well, what if you could? And she had already thought about if you could, then maybe we would be better to do um, this. And so we started that exploration together of what things would be possible. And that was um, really exciting is because as I learned about diabetes and how to treat it and what she did, um, she was she was teaching me how to deal with type 1 diabetes. And my way of thinking about that was to say, well, okay, so in this case, if this, then you want to do that. And the rules are, and so I was already um, thinking as I learned, how would I, would I codify this? How would I write it down as rules? Because I wanted, given my lack of experience, to, to have some good rules for knowing if Dana does need me to, to help do anything, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And um, we very quickly realized that those rules that I was making for myself are the same sort of rules that you would make for a system to, to do this. And so um, Dana teaching me about diabetes turned into me teaching a computer about diabetes and realizing when I did and didn't really understand things by whether or not I could teach a computer to do it. And I think that's something that we as people deal with a lot. You can't really say you understand something until you can teach it to somebody else. And that is, um, is what I experienced in this case too. And so it was a really um, a good opportunity, I think, going through this whole process for me to really get a good understanding of um, what it's like for Dana to, to live with type 1 and um, that part of our relationship is far deeper than it is for most people uh, who are living in a relationship where one person has type 1 diabetes and the other does not. And I think that's, um, that's a, not a unique experience to us. I've met several other couples who are doing open APS where um, one, of the part, one of the people in the relationship has type 1 and the other person has always just kind of deferred to the person with type 1 as being the one who knows what's going on and can deal with it. And but as they start to get brought in with the ability to to help in this way, it really deepens that part of their relationship. So that's a really interesting thing. Does it, um, you know, I, I'm wondering the difference. And I asked you that whole question because, you know, a lot of people who have kids who have type 1 listen to this podcast. And so to break the, the third wall down for a second, I just wanted them to hear, you know, for all the moms of daughters who have type 1, that there is a guy out there who will not see your daughter's diabetes or your son's diabetes or, or whatever. And, and we'll see them and care more about them than they do about what you might be worried about right now. So Scott's a good guy, obviously. And, uh, and maybe your kid will have to go through a couple of guys or girls to find the right one, but, but they exist. And, you know, I just wanted people to feel kind of hopeful about that. Cause that's something you you're concerned about when you, you know, when you, when you have small children and they're diagnosed and you think like, how's this going to affect their life now and going forward? And, and I know for me, it's one of the questions you bring up, like, is, is a, you know, is another person going to be going to ever love her enough to, to do what I do or do part of it or help her, you, you know, or just be there for her. And, um, and I guess like being the parent of a child, like I know how heartbreaking it can be. Like, you know, by the time this was all over today with Arden's blood sugar getting high last night and as we, I was driving her to school, I found myself very unconsciously telling her as we pulled up to the school, I was like, hey, I'm sorry your blood sugar got so high last night because I was apologizing for me because I fell asleep and at this and I, and I was apologizing. It had nothing to do with me. I just felt bad that it was something she was going through. You know, like it just, it sucks to watch somebody live like that. And, and at the same time, she has so many triumphs, like, don't get me wrong. Like so much goes right for her and so many days and hours aren't like last night. Um, and, and I'm just really proud of her and, and watching her live her life and, and everything. But when something like this happens, when I know that I let her sleep in this morning, cause she 
would have felt nauseous if I if she woke up. Like I just sometimes it's really heartbreaking. Do you feel that heartbreak the same way as a spouse that that I'm describing as a parent? I, I can't really say whether my emotions are the same ones you're experiencing, but right. the words you're using to describe that resonate a lot with me. Um, I I feel that I'm sorry that this happened feeling pretty intensely sometimes. And I tell Dana, um, I'm sorry. And I often, because I've been involved in open APS, feel a little bit of responsibility, um, not to the extent that, that you're talking about where you are the one actually making all the decisions and doing everything. And so your actions um, were the, I mean, she has diabetes. It's not your fault she has diabetes, but you did or didn't do certain things that make you feel really responsible. I feel a little bit of that, but Dana's always telling me, look, you're not responsible for my diabetes. It's not your fault that I went high or you went, that I went low. Um, and that, that doesn't change the fact that I'm sorry that you are high or low. And that is something that um, you're going to have in, in any relationship where someone really loves the other person is, I'm sorry that you're not feeling well. Yeah. And that empathy is, is there in those relationships as adults, just as it is between parents and kids. Um, that the precise way it manifests in terms of um, are you actually doing things to, to prevent it or can you do anything that might change from situation to situation. But there is um, there's definitely that um, that aspect of the the emotional caring and the empathy. It, it really is um, is present in the same way when you were talking about um, the way that some people are judged on superficial characteristics in um in some relationships but that's not the way it has to be um i was i was thinking through some of the stories that dana told me about people she dated previously and um even outside our personal experience just knowing that there there are so many people out there who really are very superficial in the way they evaluate other people but there are lots and lots of people who are not there are lots of people for whom um having a conversation and getting to know someone and, and learning about them is far more important than um, whether they have a mole on their nose. Yeah. Um, that there's just so many, um, so many aspects of our our bodies and our physical selves that are are not perfect. And um, some people are going to to consider that a turnoff and to not be interested in in having a relationship because. Um, someone isn't perfect, but those are the sort of people that you maybe don't want to have relationships. I was just going to say, maybe, <laughs> and so maybe yeah. that maybe that insulin pump in a rather unexpected way is a is a pathway to the right person. Yeah, and yeah. I think Dana was using it that way when she pulled it out at our first date. She knew that this was a very easy way to test how superficial I was yeah. and whether I was worth having a relationship with. Because if I reacted to that pump negatively then there's a good chance that there was going to be lots of other things that I would, um, I would react negatively to, and it would be a more negative relationship. Whereas if I'm the kind of person who looks at that and says, Oh, okay, that's, that's part of you. And I want to learn more about you and how this relates to your life. Then that was something that she, um, that a test that I passed, um, and allowed us to, um, rapidly develop into a, a much deeper relationship that that first date lasted what was it? Four or five, six hours. The the first three dates were all really long, like that. Yeah. And um, that that sort of um, relationship is something that people with diabetes can um, can learn to expect, just like anyone else can. But maybe even have an advantage in um, in having a quick, easy way to to tell apart the people who um, are superficial and um, just not really worth having a, a deep relationship from the people who 
really um, are going to be an ally and um, can, you can develop that deep understanding with if you want to. Well, let me float this idea. Maybe, maybe Dana showed up at that dinner with the idea in the back of her head that she might already love you too. And maybe she didn't want to get too deep with you if you couldn't, if you couldn't hang, you know what I mean? So I think she didn't realize it until a little bit after I did. So I don't, yeah. I don't know the to girls, what extent the these things all go that. on under the surface and we don't realize it, but yeah, yeah that's quite possible. It's, it's a very, subconscious thing. Yeah. It's very, it's really cool. Um, okay. So let's make sure we make sense of all this. So you guys together wrote this algorithm that is more of a, like if this, then that idea, um, you made it available online, um, to people who is, you know, if they can understand it, they can build it, they can have it. That's the idea of the open source or the open code, um, which is a very big, you know, I mean, for people who don't pay attention to that side of the, the computer world, you know, the, a lot of the things that go on on the, uh, you know, the, like this, not just in, in healthcare are, are shared openly between people and developers and things like that. Um, but you guys are, are you starting to get a number of how many how many people have built the device um, from your code at this point? OpenAPS is up to at least 59 people, 59 that we know about, wow. people who've built a system and have been running it overnight for at least three nights. And um, of those, about, um, I believe, two-thirds are adults and one-third are children. We have um, people all the way down to um, a one-year-old who is now running OpenAPS. Um, her daughter, her father built her an OP, open APS system and they've been using it successfully to keep her blood sugar in range. So it's, it's amazing to me that it works for such a, a wide variety of different um, situations. But that, um, the fact that we went in with a, um, with a system that's based very much on, well, how do you treat diabetes? The, um, those rules are, are the same yet variable for each different person. And so you apply them as appropriate for each situation. And it's been just amazing to me um, the degree to which so many different people have um, managed to successfully build and then have just such great results with using the system. Let me ask you a question. So if I slap this on my five-year-old who weighs a certain, you know, weighs a certain weight and is a certain thing and blah, 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 then when, when her needs change, does the does the algorithm learn that as you go? I mean, I don't have to tell it like next month, hey, now this many carbs is this much insulin, right? Doesn't it figure that? Well, it, it actually, no. We, no. we built this system to be really transparent and operate in the way that you would based on the inputs that were given. Okay. Um, and we are building some tools that will help um, deal with changes over time. But the basic algorithm actually takes the settings off of your pump. Okay. So you give it an insulin sensitivity factor, an insulin to carb ratio, and it uses those. Um, now, it will make adjustments um, to say the blood sugar is running too low and I need to give less insulin or it's running too high and I need to give more. But those those baseline settings are what you give it. I see. And um, that's something that we, we want to be able to provide tools to um, tell you, look, it looks like the, the ratios seem to be off now. Um, you might want to consider adjusting them. But we have made a very conscious choice not to try and make the system um, learn those things for a few reasons. One is it's hard. Um, a lot of the, the commercial uh, algorithms do that, and that's one of the, the reasons that they're so complicated. Um, but another reason is um, we wanted it to be very um, very easy to understand what it's doing. And if the, the system is learning things that you haven't learned, then it gets ahead of you, and you can't really tell if it's doing the right thing or not. So what we want to do is keep that 
um, that linkage between what you. the system knows and what you know okay. and have it tell you, look, it looks like the, the ratios might be a little off. Do you think it might be a good idea to change them? And then you decide, yes, I think it would be a good idea to change the, the ratio to be a little bit um, lower now because she's, uh, her insulin resist, uh, sensitivity has dropped or something like that. Yeah. And um, so that is definitely one aspect of this that um, is going to be uh, another one of those, it's really important to be involved with building the system because you can't just set it up and forget it and say, okay, it's going to deal with everything now. You really need to continue to be involved in saying, okay, the system's working a lot better than if I had, had nothing at all, but it looks like it's starting to run high overnight. And so what, what settings do I need to change um, to, to get it to not have to work as hard to do high temps to bring the blood sugar back down, that kind of thing. Where do you see this all going for you guys in the, in the, because I know you, I know you got here by mistake. You're trying to make an alarm and now you've got this, but at the same time, you're also, you're also, I don't think you're a, you're not a sadist, right? If some insulin pump company floats out a great artificial pancreas and you look at it and you go, this thing works great. I don't need this. I don't need what we made anymore. I'm assuming you would do that. Like, but I would also assume that it would be difficult to walk away from what you've accomplished and not continue to see where it takes you. Like yeah, it, we've, you know, we've definitely taken an approach where um, if the if there's a solution available that, on the commercial market that's as good as what we're doing and easier to use, by all means, let's use it. Um, we have we don't use the DIY method of uploading blood sugars. We use the Dexcom share right. um, because it's just simple and it works. And we have other methods of getting blood sugar when it doesn't work, but for the most part, we use what's provided to us because it's it works well. And so that to the extent that um, an artificial pancreas comes out that um, does what we need it to do and works well and gives us the ability to um, to tweak it as needed to get the kind of results that Dana wants, then by all means, we'll, we'll switch to that. The concern is that when these first-generation systems come out, they're going to be FDA-approved to, um, to run a single algorithm with a single fairly high target and we may not be able to get the control that we want out of the first generation systems um and it may be that these systems just can't um aren't quite as good as what we've built ourselves and so we expect that um, we'll be evaluating the systems and providing feedback to the companies and making recommendations that people who want an easy to use system go ahead with the commercial ones but there'll be some of us who have um more of a desire to be in control and keep things really aggressive and are willing to do the extra work who will continue to use open APS systems at first. Now, I, I fully expect that um, there will be systems that come along that replace most of what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. Whether we, at that by that time, have built um, more additional things on that um, that we don't want to, to give up, I don't know. But hopefully we'll be able to integrate with the commercial systems to basically replace what we're doing today and continue to do whatever new stuff we've dreamed up in the next few years. Now, 59 users that you know of, right? So I, that's flying under the radar, I would assume. Like, I, I know you've had like some, you know, the FDA has contacted you a little bit to make sure you're not, you know, not doing anything outside of the boundaries and, and you're not. But I mean, has, has any company come along and been like, look, here's a couple of bucks, stop, or come work <laughs> for us. Or, I mean, is that, because this is not your job, am I correct? Yeah, we uh, both have day jobs that don't relate to this, and we're doing this entirely in our um, spare time, nights and weekends, whatever. Um, companies are actually interested in what we're doing for a few reasons. One is that they see 
um, how much difference we're making in terms of um, uh, getting people to understand these technologies and, and getting wider acceptance. That includes both um, patients and users, but also regulators. Um, the the efforts that we and everyone else in this community have made around Night Scout and some of the stuff that Dana and I have been doing have led to the FDA approving commercial products much faster than they would have otherwise. The Dexcom share got approved in 30 days. Um, the MiniMed Connect got approved in seven days. Both of those timeframes were faster than they would have been otherwise because of the, the we are not waiting uh, movements and what what's been going on there. Um, and so the, the companies see us as an asset in, in that sense. They also um, see us as lead users and people who are doing um, basically market testing for them. And they, they want to learn what we've learned. They want to understand how they can make their products better based on input from people like us. So we're, we're having those conversations with, with companies. Um, nobody's offered us money yet. Um, <laughs> and there certainly isn't anyone saying, please stop what you're doing. Right. Um, we don't like it and we're going to try and encourage you to, there hasn't been any of that. No, the upside um, for what you're doing for them is huge. I mean, because you are able to move forward unfettered and, and find out what works and doesn't work very quickly and, and put it into practice and take it out of practice. And I'm assuming they would love to be operating like you're operating, honestly. Yeah. And they, they're a little bit jealous of our ability to, to do that, but they also realize that we're just playing a different role than they are. We're doing stuff that's on the very leading edge with a, a group of elite users, and they're trying to make things that are um, broadly accessible to everyone in the population. I think and so they, they have different constraints, and they have different goals, and that's, that's fine. We're, we're each playing our position, and diabetes is the enemy, and we're all working towards, um, towards solving those problems. But there's, um, there's definitely some things that we want to do in the future that, um, that might bring those together a little bit. There's, there's a lot of things that we think could be done to make the process of... Um, for example, clinical trials, um, a little bit more iterative and um, able to learn what's, um, what there is to learn as you're going through the process. And to date, the, um, the process that these companies have to work through is fairly conservative. And some of them are working with FDA to come up with new processes that are more streamlined. Dexcom's um, share approval, for example, was a, a de novo um, approval through what was basically a, a new process with the FDA. And that, um, that is innovation in the, in the regulatory framework. But we think that there's a lot more that could be done there. So that might be an avenue that we explore in the future. Um, but at the moment, we're basically just trying to make the um, open APS system um, even more easy to use and um, accessible to more people without um, stepping over any of those lines of making it too easy, of course. But um, there's lots of things that we, we will be and can do to, to help with that. The other really big... Um, question and concern is, uh, what do we do when these old Medtronic insulin pumps are no longer available? So I don't know if we've talked, you talked about this Dana at all. Yeah, with Dana, you guys, it's just the Dexcom CGM and the, and a Medtronic pump that, that's but it's not just any Medtronic pump. These have to be old Medtronic pumps because the newer ones have been locked down so that they don't have the feature of being able to set the 10 basils. And there is no FDA approved, um, commercial product being sold today that can work with open APS. And that's a real concern for us because um, as these old pumps eventually break and we run out of them, it may be that we can't keep doing open APS the way we've been doing it today. So we're, uh, there's a bunch of people who are trying to figure out ways to work with other devices, other pumps that are on the market today. And um, we've been talking to, to companies about maybe getting access to them. A lot of that runs into regulatory and liability concerns. So there's a lot of work being done to just reverse engineer what's out there already. Um, there's a lot of efforts around trying to broaden 
who can use an open APS style thing. So for example, there's a lot of people who are like, I use an Omnipod, I love it because it's not doesn't have a tube, etc. I would love to use Omnipod with open APS. Well, you can't today. Mm. There are of course people working on um, trying to do that, but at the moment it's just not possible. So we, we really want to, to drive that kind of um, effort forward. That's not something that Dana and I are working on personally, mm. but it is something that this larger community is, is starting to congeal around trying to, to get more people on that problem and trying to solve it. There's lots of things like that where we know more could be done. We know we could do better. Um, we just are trying to figure out how. Well, Scott, listen, I, in the, in the, in the right now, in, in my mind, you have, you have a product that you could develop pretty simply that would help not just people with pumps. And by the way, this is Scott and I have patented this right now. Any of I see it pop up after this date and we're, we're coming after you, but, but you, you, you could easily, I would assume with your, if this, then that, you could build an app that even a person on MDI could look at and and use their information and say, I did this and this happened and this and this happened. Okay, app, what should I have tried or what what should I try next? Just- yep, and that's, that is something that we have thought about as a path forward. It actually uh, happens that there are com- um, people and even companies that they've built doing exactly that. Um, most of them are focused around um, the bolus calculator aspect of it. But there's a, there's other apps. Um, Tidepool has actually some things um, that allow you to put in information about meals that you had and the um, it'll track what outcomes you had as a result of that. And so you can look back and say, well, this is what worked last time. There's a lot of innovation going around um, those kind of things. And that's, that's great. That's something we really encourage. Um, it's because it's something that there are um, lots of people who found that that's something I can do. It's um, it's something that Dane and I haven't uh, already, had to go fix ourselves because yeah. fortunately there's other people doing it. Now, let me just um, say but, I don't believe they were doing it before. I just had the idea just now. So, <laughs> um, and <laughs> ideas are a dime a dozen. But, yeah. it's, the, it's the actual doing of the thing that uh, that makes it valuable. Well, no, you're, you're not you're not wrong about that. And and so and it, I think the issue with it not being connected to an insulin pump isn't so much that it won't work. But the, I think the issue ends up being that when you start adding so much time and steps to managing something that already takes so much time and so much steps, that even when these apps come out and they do work really well, it's hard for people to adopt them because it's more it's more stuff. You know, it's more saying diabetes in a day, and no one's looking for that, I guess. Yeah, the, there's a there's a limit to how much more anyone wants to do to get better outcomes, yeah. and it, to the extent that you can make. Uh, a process, an app, a system of any sort that automates things to the point where it actually makes it easier as opposed to making it harder, um, that is something that's that's way more valuable. And that's what we found with building DIYPS was that Dana never entered her um, carbs or her um, insulin into any logbooks or anything like that. But when we built a system that gave her um, recommendations where she d- didn't have to do the calculations herself and got better outcomes, she was willing then to, to start entering that information. And there's um, there's a degree to which people really need to understand that dynamic in order to be successful at building these apps, which is you need to provide something that, um, that makes the, the user's life easier in order to encourage them to do the extra steps that your, yes. um, your app or your process requires. Because and if you are successful at that, then you can really make a big difference. If you're not, is, nobody will use it. That is the really big stepping away because my personal, if that, if this, then that happens in my head. I, like you said, I don't. I don't really count carbs. I don't really write anything down. I've never. I, I've never taken a logbook to an endo in my life. I've never let them download my daughter's pump, and we are. I mean, forty minutes past her her lunch 
bolus, which happened while you and I were talking that you don't even know about. Her blood sugar is 135 now in a, in a, in a lunch where she had watermelon, yogurt, a sandwich with Nutella, um, Doritos, and what else was in that bag? Something else. A lot of stuff that you shouldn't have a 135 blood sugar after you ate. Like, like 135 is killer right now. Yeah. And, and it will come lower in the next half an hour, and we'll get it back to where we want. Trust me, if she was home, I could have been more specific with that pre-bolus. But, you know, we're, set, we're stuck with this is exactly when she's allowed to pre-bolus because it's, a, it's 15 minutes before she sits down in the cafeteria. Because of the where her blood sugar was today, if we were at home, I would have pre-bolused five or ten minutes sooner. But but not nevertheless, all those functions that happen happen in my head, and they're not based on anything that in this split second I could put into words for you. They're all from my thoughts and my knowledge and what some people call the magic of diabetes, like just my understanding of in this situation, this is what works. And and but that's difficult too, because I Think about it. I took care of that through a text message while you and I were talking, and you never knew I did it. I, I knew you were going to be doing it, and I was thinking as, it the, happen, as the interview right? progressed, that I'm like, he said he was going to do this thing. I thought he was going to have to interrupt the interview for it, but apparently he figured out happened. some other way. Right. And But but it, but somebody out there has got an app where I would have been like, all right, Scott, hold on a minute while I plug in my all these thoughts into this app. And and to be fair, I still think that's a great idea because not everyone's mind works the way my mind does. Like you could, another person could have had my exact same life experiences with diabetes and not come to the spot where I am. Like, mm -hmm. so I love the idea that that exists. And especially for people on MDI, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of an insulin pump, but if you don't want to use one, you should still be able to have good, stable blood sugars, you know? Um, I meant to ask you one question. We're up on an hour, and I don't want to keep you any longer, but uh, but I do want to get this one question kind of jammed in here. How much of what you're doing now um, relies on predictive data that comes out of that Dexcom sensor? And if nothing, are you looking at it for the future? Because that seems very exciting to me. So I, let me get you to clarify. What do you mean by predictive data you, out you, of the you Dexcom? You know how the, how the Dexcom sort of says you – it, it says it has that kind of component to it that's like – I think this is where you're headed, up or down, but it doesn't show us as Dexcom users that data, but people on Nightscale can see it. Ah, so you're talking about the, the raw data. Um, okay, is that how they, that is you that can, what they call it? Yeah, okay. so the, the, the way that works is you've got this sensor that's transmitting uh, readings from your arm and uh, or wherever you've placed it, abdomen, whatever, and that, um, that has raw readings of here's what it looks like the blood sugar is right now. And there's some algorithms in the Dexcom uh, receiver that actually smooth that out so that you don't have quite the, the jumpy, um, the readings that you sometimes get, especially with failing sensors and such. Mm -hmm. But there are ways to pull out the actual raw data and see that in addition to seeing what um, the Dexcom displays on its screen. As it happens, um, we do have some capabilities to use that data that other people have built in. Jason Calabrese has um, built in some capabilities to use raw data, um, but mostly just in the in the times when you don't have the regular Dexcom data. We don't use that at all. We use the Dexcom share uploader, which doesn't upload that data at all. Mm -hmm. And everything that we do in OpenAPS um, is actually based on the same numbers that show up on the Dexcom screen. So we get the we get every number. We, we get the arrow, but we ignore that because that's just um, a basically an indication of what you've been doing for the last 15 minutes, and we can tell that from the numbers. Um, so we do everything based on those numbers that come off the Dexcom, and um, 
that we used not just the last number, but the the previous numbers as well to get an idea of what the trend is and such. But we don't actually rely on the raw data at all. We could, and it might be possible to improve the algorithm slightly, but we found that the the Dexcom, um, the latest firmware is actually designed for artificial pancreas um, systems. It's designed to integrate with, with pumps that are doing AP, right. and they've done a pretty good job of presenting the data in a way that actually is useful for doing that. So that final number and that error that they're going to give you, you, you don't really need the other stuff that you can't see. Yeah, I just need the numbers. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't even need the arrow. I don't need any of the stuff that's behind the scenes. Um, we just get the numbers off the Dexcom, and that's sufficient to um, decide what to do. Right, the FDA so. hasn't approved it for dosing insulin, but it is good enough. Well, Scott, I dose off it. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And, <laughs> Lots of people uh, do. And um, and I'm going to tell you the same thing I told Dana. I'm after I speak to you, I'm left with I'm completely assured of this thought that I had 20 years ago, and I still believe it today. If I was on the Mayflower and I landed at Plymouth Rock. I would have conquered as much of America as I could have before I got to my first stream, and then I would have stopped and built a house right there. I, I just, I, I know I wouldn't have been like, how do we get over this body of water? I would have been like, this is good enough, right here is good. Um, but maybe, maybe to your point earlier, have I had 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 Pilgrim me tried a little harder? Maybe I could have kept going. So, um, tell me a little, just give me the the lowdown just quickly on how people find the open APS and where they would want to start. Yeah, uh, open APS is an open project that anybody can use and all you need to do is go to openaps.org and we have everything linked from there. There's links to um, the explanation of what it is and how it works. There's links to the instructions for how to get started. There's links to um, the chat rooms where people hang out and can be available at all hours of the day to answer questions if you get stuck. Um, it's a There's a tremendous set of resources all linked from openaps.org. Okay. All right. I'm going to put links in the show notes for people. And um, I just really can't thank you enough for coming on and doing this. It's just, it's something that I've always seen you and Dana on Twitter. And I was like, this is so interesting. And I always just felt like it was over my head and then I don't know it just struck me a couple weeks ago I was like why am I not just letting them explain it like like, like this would be so much simpler like I'm not going to figure it out on my own but they could tell it to me um, which makes me like everyone else I'm like just make it work please Scott uh, so, it's been great talking to you thanks so much for doing it you, you too Thank you to the good people at Omnipod for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox Podcast. Please check them out on Twitter and on Facebook and their new app that's available on the Android and iOS store. They've got new... My dogs are coming over now. What's up, buddy? You got something you want to say? Huh? Oh, Indy, you got to go outside? Basically, you want to make a snorty noise or anything while you're here? This is it? Just this little, like, sad, let me go outside noise? Oh, now there's barking. All right, listen. Omnipod's great. They sponsor the uh, podcast. My daughter's been using Omnipod forever. I really do love it. Check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and their new app. Uh, plus, they've got a completely redesigned website and everything else. I will be back just as soon as possible with another episode of the Juice Box Podcast. Thank you for listening. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes if you've enjoyed the show. If you haven't enjoyed the show, please, for the love of God, don't leave a rating or review anywhere. <laughs>